Good morning, my name is Gaylene, and the Old Testament reading is found in Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 31. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Diana. The New Testament reading is found in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the one who is first over all creation, because all things were created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, the things that are visible and the things that are invisible, whether they are thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He existed before all things, and all things are held together in him. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the one who is firstborn from among the dead, so that he might occupy the first place in everything. Because all the fullness of God was pleased to live in him, and he reconciled all things to himself through him, whether things on earth or in the heavens, he brought peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. My name is Robin. The gospel reading today is found in John 1, 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing as we pray. A gracious God, we ask that as we listen to your word today, being read and being taught, that everything that is said here today would be ministered to us through your Holy Spirit, that you would take your words from these pages and breathe them into our hearts, that we would not just find our minds open, but we would find our lives transformed by your power, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Glenn Packiam. I'm the pastor here at New Life Downtown. It's wonderful to see all of you. Last week, we began a series through a book 
of the Bible called Colossians. We'll say a bit more about that book here in a moment. This is the second part of that. And today we're going to be grappling with a question uh, that is really the pivotal question in all of human history. And the question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Jesus, there's a pastor in London named Nicky Gumbel, and uh, he's, he leads a great church there. It's called Holy Trinity Brompton. It's the church that developed the Alpha Course, which is another one of the courses uh, that we run here for people who are curious about faith, not sure about what Christians believed. And, and Nicky tells the story of a conversation that he had one day uh, at his you know, local gym or health club. And uh, you know, in England, in an Anglican church, if you're the senior pastor, you're called a vicar. And so at the gym, he kind of got this nickname of Nick the Vic, you know, and so one day he's hanging out with these guys and this, this, this friend that he plays with him says, hey, Nick the Vic, he says, Nick, you're a, he's, how many people come to your church, Nick? And he says, oh, you know, about 5,000 or so. And the guy goes, Jesus. And Nicky goes, that's why they come, you know. <laughs> And then he says, and he says, but we're not even the largest church. There's another one called Hillsong. 10,000 people come to their church. And the guy goes, Jesus Christ. And he goes, that's right. They come for him there too, you know. And I thought, how fascinating is it that here's the name of Jesus that is in fact the reason why not just thousands, but millions of people all around the world gather weekly to worship his name. And yet for other people, it's just a name that you use as an expression of disbelief. It's just sort of your way of, of uh, you know, expressing incredulity or whatever, you know. And how is it that this name can have so many different uses? The name of Jesus, Jesus the person himself, is far and away the most fascinating person in all of history. More books have been written about Jesus than any other figure, any other historical figure. In fact, he's so influential that his followers decided eventually that the way you should mark time should be around his birth. And so everything prior to his arrival is the years before Christ, and everything after it are the years of our Lord. Anno Domini, the in the year of our Lord, as in a new Lord has arrived, a new reign has begun. Who is this Jesus? In his name, inspired by his life and by his teaching, his followers have cared for the sick, fed the hungry, looked after the poor, welcomed strangers into their home. Hospitals have been founded in his name and in his honor and in accordance with his teaching. Schools have been established. The rule of law and justice has been, has been uh, developed and established because of this attempt to follow a new kind of king. Now, I know some of us in the Western world were like, well, there was Roman stuff and there was Greek stuff, all true, but there's some unique pieces that are only in our world and culture because of Jesus. The only reason why we look at a victim and feel the sense that a victim should have the power and dignity of his own story is because a crucified Jewish slave was called God. There's no other area. Prior to Jesus, if someone said, I'm sorry, I'm a victim here, society would have said, right, so sit down and shut up. But because a victim on the cross was then found to be the son of God, we all of a sudden say, if a person's a victim, all of a sudden we care now. And that itself becomes a mode of power. This is a transformative thing that has changed the face of not just human history, but of culture. 
I was listening to a secular historian recently this week just talking about that. The things we take for granted. Oh, well, that came from so-and-so. That. No, no, no. Most of this stuff you trace back and you say, well, it came from Jesus. But when you have a conversation about Jesus with your friends or your coworkers, maybe at your college classes that are starting back up, you will likely hear people say something like this. Oh, well, Jesus, he taught some good things. But you know, Christians invented this mythology about him being divine. That shows up much later. And they'll, sometimes the more educated ones might point to the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is this confession of faith that gets written at a council called the Council of Nicaea. It's just the place where they gathered in the year A.D. 325. It gets refined in the year 381. And because the council was convened by a Roman emperor, very often critics of Christianity will say, oh, well, it was just Rome trying to leverage this mythology for the sake of the building of their empire and the consolidation of their empire. And so all this, this is where the mythology of Jesus as God gets developed. And so, well, look at the creed. It says, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. Now, hang on a minute. That sounds like that phrase we just read in our New Testament reading from Colossians 1. Through him, all things were made. And you're like, yeah, yeah that's right. What if the Christians who wrote down the creed were actually using earlier phrases, earlier understandings of Jesus, and they were just writing it down for the first time, but it had already been there? In fact, this is the case. And we see this not just from other Christian documents, but we see this from Roman documents. There was a, a Roman uh, influential teacher who's a Greek philosopher named Celsus. And in the year A.D. 170, this is way earlier than the creed now, Celsus says, when they, Christians, call Jesus Son of God, it's not because they're paying very great reverence to God, but because they are exalting Jesus greatly. Celsus says, these Christians are crazy because they're not trying to exalt the one true God. They're exalting this man, quote unquote, Jesus, higher than they should. What are they doing? And then go earlier than that. Pliny was a governor who wrote letters to his uncle Trajan, who was the emperor, and Pliny would write letters about what to do about the Christians. And in AD, right around AD 111, Pliny writes, the Christians were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as a God. And now you have it a few decades after the time of Christ, 50, 60, uh, 70, 80 years after this, you're seeing Christians have already come to this habit of singing a hymn. Well, what might that hymn be? Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20 is written as a hymn. It's written as a, as a poem, but most likely we say, this, this sounds very much like a hymn. Could it be that when Pliny wrote down in 111 that Christians would sing a hymn to Christ as if he were God, that this is the hymn they're talking about in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. And when was Colossians written? Well, we know from the letter itself, Paul's writing to a young church in Colossae. He's never visited, the, visited them. He's only heard of them. But he's writing to them from prison. And there's only a few options of where Paul was imprisoned when he was writing this. But there's a good chance that this letter was written in the 50s, the AD 50s. Now think about this. If Jesus dies around A.D. 32, 30, something like that in the 30s, we're talking about two decades later, this letter shows up worshiping Jesus as God. 
that's significant because we can't brush this off and just say, oh, this is a gradual mythology. This is like all the stuff. Somehow we have to account with the question of who Jesus is. And this worship song in Colossians tells us who he is. If you turn there, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to verse 15 of Colossians 1. Or you've got your app, you can do that. Just don't be distracted by Facebook. Um, or you can, you're welcome to just follow along on the screen. This whole hymn that Paul's singing out loud, if you will, in front of the Colossian church is about the supremacy of Jesus. It's about Jesus being the sovereign and supreme over all. And he builds his case in kind of two modes. He starts talking about creation and then new creation. Watch this with me. Verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now that's a funny phrase. Firstborn, does that mean Jesus is the first created being? No, 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 no. That's why later on they had to refine it and say begotten but not made. Some of our other translations say he's the first. He's got, the point I, I think here is that Jesus has primacy over creation. He has the first place. He has the primal, the, the, the place of primacy in creation. And then he goes on, verse 16, the song says, For by him all things were created in him, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. I mean, look at these, if you're into like, parts of English grammar, you're really going to nerd out. But look at this. By him all things were created, and then it says, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things were created through him and for him. Paul's just trying to say, you can't talk about creation and miss Jesus' role in this. You see, in the ancient world, both the Jewish world and even part of the Greco-Roman world, there was a sense that there's a one true God. Obviously, in the Jewish world, there's this one God, Yahweh. And in the, the, even in the Greek and Roman world, there's all these gods, but they sort of thought there's one who's sort of above them all. And Paul, what Paul is doing here is radical, revolutionary theology. He's saying, Yes, there's the one true God, and we're not pushing him out of the way, but there's someone else here. It's Jesus, and the Father actually creates in Jesus, by Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus, and in Jesus, everything even holds together. You're like, wow, who, we, nobody had ever said that about anyone else before. So not only does Jesus have agency in creation, uh, primacy in creation, Jesus has agency in creation. Jesus isn't this sort of, passive bystander that's like, oh, cool stuff, Dad. I really like that planet, you know? There's something more mysterious about the Trinity where G Paul is saying, this person, Jesus, not just a human being, not just a teacher, somehow everything that exists, existed, came into being in him, through him, and for him. That's what Paul is singing about. And then, as he goes on, in verse 18, the second half of verse 18, Paul says, uh, in his song, he says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is an amazing phrase. He's the beginning, he's the headwaters, the start of it, the start of something new has begun because of Jesus. And then he says, the firstborn from the dead, actually the Greek there is, is the, the word that we get, our, our English word prototype comes from that. And so there's a sense in which Paul is saying, you want to know what new creation looks like? Jesus is the prototype. The risen Jesus is the first. He's the source and the prototype. He's the, he's the means and the model. He's the beginning of something new. 
If we were to try to put it in a sentence, we would say Jesus has primacy in the new creation. He's, he has primacy in the new creation. So, so primacy in the first creation, agency in the first creation, and then primacy in the new creation. He's got this first place. He's the beginner of it. And then he doesn't stop there. He says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus isn't just the start, the beginning of new creation. He's the reason new creation happens at all. He's the one. It's through his blood. It's through his death on the cross that everything starts to come back together again. Things that were ripped apart. The the broken relationship with God. The broken relationships with one another. Paul says it's because of Jesus' death on the cross that everything is being reconciled. And so Jesus not only has primacy in the new creation, he has agency in the new creation. He's the one doing it. He's the one bringing it about. He's the one making it happen. Now, this might all sound like, okay, okay, a bunch of technical words here. What's the big idea? Here's the big idea. Jesus has supremacy in creation and new creation. Jesus has the supremacy in creation and new creation. He's the one over all of it, over all of it. Listen to these verses here in a, in a couple different translations. Colossians 1, 18, uh, um, yeah, 18b in the NIV, it says, so that in everything he might have supremacy. And then I love the, the message paraphrase, it says it this way, it says he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. Jesus. Jesus has supremacy in creation and new creation. He's the Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's Jesus. So what does this mean for us? This great Christ hymn that shows up 20 years or so after the resurrection. This, why, what does it mean for us as the church? I want to say a few things. One, is the church shows up in this passage right there in verse 18. Tiny little phrase. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. This isn't one of those worship songs that have, a, have any I, me's, or my in it. Now, there's other places in the Bible for that. Certainly, you read the Psalms, lots of personal expressions of worship and cry, heart cries to God. Those are all wonderful. But this is one of those songs that it's all about Jesus. And if you're looking for your place in it, your place is in the church. Now, this is something that is countercultural to us. Because we like all the Jesus stuff. Okay, I'll take Jesus, I'll take, I'll take Jesus. But then we say, I'll take Jesus to go, please. Is that for here or to go? To go, please. I don't, I don't do church, I don't do community, people are messy. I've got Jesus, but to go, please. Jesus in a brown bag, I've got it. And Paul's saying it doesn't work that way. If you want to see the supremacy of Jesus, your place is in the church. It's the church that exists in the space between creation and new creation. 
The church exists in this space between creation and new creation. Look at it in the hymn. First stanza is about creation. Second stanza is about new creation. And somewhere in the middle is this little phrase about the church. There we are. Oh, there we are. Right there. Right in this middle space. And you know this because the fact that we're part of the first creation that still, that of course bears the, the marks and the effects of the fall it doesn't just mean that our hair is thinning and my beard is graying, although it does mean that. It also means, being part of the first creation that is decaying, that our relationships are messy. That sometimes we do hurt one another. That that same sin that was at work in the garden that made Adam blame Eve and Cain kill Abel is kind of there. It's lurking all around us. And so if you, if you think the church has to be free of that, you need to know the church exists in this middle space. We still have that. We're still part of this first order. And yet, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. Something new has already begun. And so we're kind of in this in-between space where we're like, yes, I still see the effects of old creation, which is good, but there's some uh, the, the infection working in it. And I've got the down payment of new creation so that I can know that one day we will rise, Right? And this church, the church exists in this middle space. How are we to live in that middle space? One of the things that Paul is setting up for the rest of his letter is that the church reveals new creation by the way that we live under Jesus' lordship. The church reveals new creation now by living under the supremacy of Jesus. See, listen... Paul's about to say some really practical things in the rest of his letter. He's going to get to some stuff. He's going to get to some issues. He's going to address some falsehood and some lying. And he's going to address some old patterns of behavior. He's going to address how we treat one another in our households. He's going to address all of that. But before he gets there, he says, listen, I just want you to know, this was never just about behavior. This was never just about, come on now, you better behave. You're a Christian, you better behave. So, some of you, that's, what, that's all you heard growing up. All you heard about the Christian life or about any of the Christian ethics, quote unquote, or Christian morality is, well, you better do this just because that's what good Christians do. Paul, does, Paul will never make that argument. He never says that. What Paul's trying to say is, you're the people who already see that Jesus is Lord of creation and the Lord of new creation. You already have this foretaste of what's coming, so I want you to start to live like it. I want you to start to live into this future. One of the, 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 one of the, uh, the greatest ways to develop leaders or even to disciple children is to call them up into what they can be. Right? This, this is true even in the business world. You say the, one of the most effective ways to, to develop leaders is to say, I see this in your future. I want to help you grow into that. Right? Parents do the same thing. I see so much in you. You're this amazing young boy, this amazing young girl, and I want to help you arrive at this. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, you've got this down payment of new creation. I want you to start living it out now. I want you to let it take over now. Show the world what new creation looks like. So as we gather as the church and you go back into your places of work and the, 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 the places where you uh, are in the marketplace or in the home or your, the aerobics classes you lead at the gym, whatever, wherever you are, all the spaces that you are, you're there to reveal what new creation looks like. But the thing is, it takes a church. It takes a whole community. 
I I cannot on my own be the picture of new creation. I I don't live that. it, It can't be that way. Just yesterday, I was at a soccer tournament in Denver for our son, and I was the parent on the sideline yelling instructions. Not any, I wasn't heckling the ref or anything like that, but just yelling stuff. And the coach from the opposite sideline says, hey, stop coaching. Stop yelling that. I'm like, oh, so sorry. Yeah, right. I, see, I can't reveal new creation to the world. I can't do it. But all of us together, we do. When people look at the way Christians love one another, when Christians look at the way Christians serve one another, when Christians look at, when, when the world look, looks at the way Christians forgive one another, all of a sudden that should reveal something about the new creation. Listen, we live in an age where everybody's trying to define their identity either narrowly, well, narrowly, either by saying, well, I'm this kind of uh, gender, or I'm this kind of ethnicity, or I'm this kind, and, and everything is about identity in a very small and tribal way, even to say, I'm American. And Paul wants to blow that up. And to say, let me say, let me show you something. New creation is the place where every tribe and tongue, every language, every people group, every family, every geographic square inch of the planet comes together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what new creation looks like. So don't be the church that defines yourself as, oh, we're we're, we're this and we're this. Oh, well, we're Americans and we don't know about this or that. Be the kind of church that says, my brothers and sisters are the Christians who worship in Syria and my brothers and sisters are the Christians who worship in India and Singapore and Egypt and Russia and all around the world. We live under Jesus as Lord. We live under Jesus as Lord. That's what new creation looks like. New creation doesn't look like one single ethnicity or one single gender or one single national identity. New creation looks like a new family in Jesus Christ. And that's the basis for everything Paul is about to say in his letter. But the the next thing that I think impacts us as, as Christians, as the church, and we'll close with this, is that the church worships Jesus as the supreme and sovereign Lord. See, worship is not the warm-up act. Worship is not just the songs that we kind of sing, and so, oh, let's just, you know, do that. Paul knows that worship is the beating heart of the Christian life. That if you don't worship Jesus as the supreme and sovereign Lord, none of the other stuff makes sense. Everything else falls apart. Again, you don't live this way because it's the right thing to do. I better be a good person. You live this way because you've bent your heart in adoration to Jesus, to worship Jesus, to adore Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote that there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. That the war of the ages is the war over whom you will worship. And Paul, it's amazing. If you were in Paul's congregation, he would not tolerate being Christian-ish. Paul has no room for, I'm kind of a Buddhist Christian. I'm sort of into spirituality, the Eastern world, and sort of Jesus-ish. Paul has no room for Jesus-ish. Paul wants you to see Jesus as the supreme and sovereign Lord over all. There's no mixing stuff here. There's no, well, let's just take a little bit of that. Oh, well, look at that religion and look at this thing and let's take this philosophy. Let's just sort of call it Jesus-ish. And listen, we live in a world where Christians are either uh, um, oppositional and antagonistic and mean-spirited or they're sort of 
trying to erase all the lines of distinction. You say, well, you know, I mean, I got friends, they're Buddhist, I got friends, they're Muslim. I mean, we're, this is sort of one God, you know, one God. We're all sort of the one God people. We, we, the one God who's sort of the force that animates the living things. And it's, it's okay, right? And so we, we think that our only options are to be mean and contentious or to be soft and squishy, right? And Paul says, no, 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 look, you, you don't have to be hateful about this. But Jesus is the supreme and sovereign Lord. Let me just say this even more clearly. Paul is not interested in winning people over to belief in God. That's that's not Paul's goal. Belief in God, who cares? That's like step one. That's, That's the prelude. But the magnum opus of the gospel is not just that, oh, there's a God. Oh, creation versus evolution. We believe in a God. Okay, great. No, that's not the goal. The goal is to believe in Jesus. This God has a name. This God is the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This God is the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul will not tolerate uh, ambiguous spirituality about God stuff. He won't do it. And neither should you. Our goal for you as you gather here at New Life Downtown is not that you would be generic God people. You know, just live godly lives and... God over this, and God and that, and God and this. No. Our goal for you is to call you to worship Jesus. Now, I understand. It, sometimes it's necessary to build bridges. And say, oh, look at this common ground here. And oh, look at this. Oh, that's interesting. Christians have a version of that. And oh, that's fine. It's great. I, I'm in those spaces a lot. And I love those spaces. I love those spaces where there's, there's dialogue between. The, but I have to be honest with you. My end game is not that we would all sort of see how much in common we may or may not have. My end game is that every knee would bow and that every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's my passion. That's what I want. And the best thing we can do for people is to call them to worship Jesus. To call them to worship Jesus. It's the most loving thing we can do. Now, another kind of myth of our age is that Jesus is great, but you know, that's sort of like 1.0 in the, or or maybe even 2.0 in the evolution of religion and human consciousness. And that now that we've got the Jesus thing, we had 2,000 years ago, that's great. But it's time now to sort of transcend and include all faith consciousness. And Jesus was a great early phase. Jesus, no, don't get me wrong, that was an important part of my spiritual development. But now I'm so enlightened that I can include all of the faiths. Have you heard this? I have. I have over and over again. And when Paul says, all things, and when Paul says, in him, All things hold together. What Paul is saying is there is nothing outside of Jesus. Nothing outside. So you, if you take a step away from Jesus into, you might think you're taking a step into something bigger. Paul says you're taking a step into nothingness. The step beyond Jesus is not a step upwards, it's a step into the abyss. The step outside Jesus is not a step to be so magnanimous and enlightened. It's a step into nothingness. And the reason Paul's using this creation language evoking Genesis 1 is he's trying to say to us, without Jesus, the world was empty and void. But with him, everything comes together. So you choose. Do you want life with Jesus? Or do you want life 
quote unquote, beyond Jesus, outside Jesus. There is no life outside Jesus. This is the sober call of the gospel. And again, I'm for bridge building conversations. But our gospel says that Jesus is the supreme and sovereign Lord. There's no space outside of that. We don't fool ourselves to say that. Well, you know, I just sort of grew up past my Christian upbringing. I'm sort of, I'm sort of post, post-Christian now. Okay. Can I just say to you that maybe being post-Christian is actually a step into the abyss of nothingness? That the only way that your life will begin to come together again is when you step back into Jesus. In him, all things hold together. Amen? This morning, I want the word of the Lord to call you back to Jesus today. To call you back to Jesus. Maybe you say, well, I've never left. Great. I'm still calling all of us back again and again and again. So easily our lives run away from us. Our lives fragment into these bits and pieces that sort of spill out. And we're like, oh, no. I'm and it leads us into these disparate places. And it's only in Jesus that they begin to come back again. I love the message paraphrase of this. I want to read you more of it. The message paraphrase of Ephesians 1, the way that uh, Eugene Peterson says it. He says, he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He's supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. And then here's the part I love. Not only that, But all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. We come to the table week after week after week when we gather together as a church so that we can say, God, the stuff that happened at work today, the stuff that happened in my home today, the stuff that happened out in the world today, it's all just made my life more broken and dislocated pieces. And I'm coming to your table today so that by your broken body and by your spilled blood, you would put me back together again. I'm coming back here, Jesus, because I know it's not in success that that all things hold together. It's not in prosperity that all things hold together. It's in Jesus that all things hold together. So we come. Again and again and again to Jesus. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? We've sung it so beautifully this morning. Christ alone, the cornerstone. We've sung about Jesus. It's the one through whom all that is in the, the galaxies and beyond come into being. We've sung about Jesus who... Because he left the grave behind him, so will we. Now as we come to the table, I want you to just sort of let your heart be opened up now in this place. To be able to confess, yeah, God, without you, nothing holds together. Without you, nothing holds together. Without you, it all falls apart. But in you, everything holds together.